0: If everyone would like to open their Bibles to uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. shed on the cross.
1: This morning, uh, I want to talk about Emmanuel. Christmas is over, I get it, but Emmanuel is always with us, God with us. Who is this child? The announcement to Joseph was that he was to name the child Jesus because he would save his people. From their sins, and that his name would be Emmanuel, which in the Hebrew means God with us. God came down to save his people from their sins, and we read in or read in Luke, uh, Mary said, "How can this happen? I'm I'm a virgin." An angel declared to her that the Holy Spirit would come upon her, and by His power, the Son of God would take up residence in her womb. So the child would be both God and man. God, man, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want us to think about the reality of who Christ is. Who that little baby is this morning. Who is this Christ child that we celebrate? Pilate called him the man without fault. The philosopher Diderot called him the unsurpassed. Napoleon said he was the emperor of love. The philosopher Strauss said he's the highest model of religion. John Stuart Mill said he was a guide of humanity. Lecky said he is the highest pattern of virtue. Kant said he's the holy one. Martineau said he's the divine flower of humanity. Evan Renan, the French atheist, said he is the greatest among the sons of men. Theodore Parker called him the youth with God in his heart. Francis Cobb said he was the regenerator of humanity. Robert Owen called him the irreproachable. The Dalai Lama says he's a reincarnated uh, Buddha. Nietzsche said he's a fable. Gandhi called him the innocent one. And Gorbachev said he's the first socialist. <laughs> a lot of descriptions, most of them Positive. But none of those is a true understanding of who this child is. Thomas, the disciple, got it right when he, saw, when he said, My Lord and my God. The Father declared from heaven, This is my beloved Son. But I want us to turn to the words of the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1 that Luke read So well this morning we find the Holy Spirit putting together a portrait of Christ painting him if you will with different colors representing his different relationships his relationship to God his relationship to the world to angels to the church and to all others listen once again as the Apostle Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit gives us this description. I'm going to read it again because it is so profound. Who is this child? The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. shed on the cross this is really a stunning summary of statements that give us an accurate portrait of Jesus Christ Paul begins with his relationship to God Christ's relationship to God in verse 15 the son is the image of the invisible God Now we know in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, the Bible says that God created men and women, God made them in his own image according to his own likeness, talking about us. Humanity was created by a a divine pattern, we were made, we were created on the sixth day in the image of God according to God's likeness. That's not true of any other creature. No other creature was made in God's image. We share physical and biological features with the rest of living creation but, because we have to share the same environment here on earth. But when it comes to men and women, they have completely unique metaphysical and spiritual features that belong to no other creature, both ontologically as to their being, And ethically, as to their understanding, they are like God. People alone can reason. People alone can think abstractly. People alone comprehend morality. People understand beauty. People possess the full range of emotion. They express will. People understand artistry, creativity, craftsmanship. People have extremely complex language, far beyond any form of communication by any other creature's. People experience love and they are defined as having, in the basic definition, meaningful relationships. God, a Trinity, three in one, is a God of relationships and created us to have relationships with one another and a relationship with Him. That's the creation of mankind. But here it doesn't say God made Jesus in His image. It says he is the image of the invisible God. Mankind was created in God's image. Man is not God. Christ is the image of God, God, which means Christ is God. He is not created by God. In chapter 2 of Colossians, verse 9, we read this brief statement. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. All that God is, he is in Jesus in bodily form. Not made to bear some of the marks of the image of God, but who is actually the image of God. He is a Shekinah glory of God, shining in human form. In Philippians chapter 2 verse 6, Paul says he is a very morphe of God. Translations translate translated as form of or nature of. The Greek dictionary describes it as the external appearance of We know that God doesn't have a physical body. He is spirit. So Jesus is the external appearance of God. So we can then relate to him. Jesus being the external appearance of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. In other words, he was equal with God in eternity, but didn't hold on to that and was willing to give up those advantages of his divine being, that equality, and take on the form of a servant to be humbled even to death on the cross. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says this another way, speaking of Christ, the sun is a radiance of God's glory. Again, that, that concept of the Shekinah glory. The Son is a radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. He is the exact uh, representation of God's nature. John chapter 1, verse 1, you know that well. In the beginning was the Word, talking about Jesus Christ, and the Word was with God. Not only that, John says, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And if you go down to verse 14 of that same chapter, he says a word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and has made him known. Here in our passage, Paul says that the Son is the icon of the invisible God, the definition of which is the exact image of one in whom the likeness of anyone is seen. That's the Greek dictionary definition. That's the best that Paul could do with words to say that Christ was a precise portrait of God. But even that falls short of a good description, so, so, can't, so Paul can't just leave it there. He's, he's got to expound on that a little bit. He's got to open that up a little bit more. He's got to unpack that so we can have a, a, a greater understanding of the fullness of that, in case we just think that you know, Christ is some kind of an, an image, idol, uh, something that kind of represents God. In John chapter 14, Jesus talking to his disciples says to them in verse 9, Don't you know me, Philip? You remember that? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? Profound statement of being. In John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus speaking to the Jews says, I and the Father are what? We're one. We're one. And the Jews' response was predictable. <laughs> they picked up stones again. It's not the first time to stone him. And Jesus answered, I, I showed you many good works uh, from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered, for a good work, we don't stone you. But for blasphemy and because you being a man make yourself out to be God. There was no question in their minds what Jesus was claiming and the fact that Jesus was claiming to be God. And he daily demonstrated that reality by his words and his works. You remember back in Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, God speaking to Moses says, No one can see me and live. No one can see me and live. But God wanted to have a relationship with us. And so he came down in visible form, in the form of Jesus. What great love. Look at the life of Christ. Look at his works, his miracles. Look at his attitudes towards sin and righteousness, towards people, and towards their struggles and, and their problems, their, toward their life, toward death, toward children, towards false religions. And we see God's attitude coming through Jesus in everyone. But there's another statement made in verse 15 that speaks even further to this. Uh, He's identified as a firstborn over all creation. Now, when we hear this, we often think chronology, first, second, third, fourth. But that can't be the sense of the firstborn here, because there were many people born before Jesus was born on earth in human form. The other thing it doesn't mean is that he was created in a sense that he had not existed and so he was created when he was born. He wasn't created. We've already talked about it. He always was. And he certainly wasn't the first person created at that moment in Bethlehem. So what does this mean? On well, Hebrews 10, verse 5, there's a very interesting verse that says, A body you prepared for me. I love that phrase. A body you prepared for me. You see, Jesus already existed. God just made a body for him to be placed into, to use, in order to come into this world to live and die and rise again. But in what sense, then, is he the firstborn? Firstborn is a word in the Greek, prototokos, Prototokos. It basically means the primary one. Proto. Prototype. That's where we're getting the word from. We get our, uh, th- that, that word of prototype. Our, one commentary said it's about a primogenitor, not chronology. Well, I had to look that word up. You probably heard the word progenitor, which refers to an ancestor. Primogenitor. The dictionary says, and I quote, "...an ancestor, especially the earliest or primal, primal ancestor of a people. Of all the people who have ever been created, and certainly Christ's physical body was created there, there in Bethlehem, of all the people ever created, He is the premier one." That's what firstborn means here. The firstborn was a son who had all the rights... The firstborn was a son who carried on the family authority. The firstborn was the one who had the primary right of inheritance, the special place of privilege and prestige and honor. He was the father's heir. And that's exactly what this is saying here in our passage. He is the eternal God who came into the world uh, in the form of a man and is declared to be the very heir of all that God possesses. Because he himself has a right to it since he is God. There's an interesting verse back in Psalm 89 in which we have God's prophetic comment on this truth. Listen to the words starting in verse 27, speaking of the coming Messiah, the Son of God. And I will appoint him to be my firstborn. There's that word again. The most exalted of the kings of the earth, I will maintain my love for him forever, and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne, as long as the heavens endure. He is establishing the Messiah as the King of kings, the highest of the kings of the earth, giving him an everlasting throne and an everlasting Uh, heaven and that's what it means he's my firstborn means he inherits everything it all belongs to him there's a picture of this in the book of revelation in chapter 5 as john sees a vision of god sitting on his throne and he has a scroll in his hand and the scroll, scroll is written on the inside and on the outside and is sealed with seven seals Apparently, that was a typical way that Romans did their will. They rolled it up as a scroll, and every so often, they would seal it. Then they would write some more, they'd roll some more, and seal it. Write some more, roll some more, seal it. And they would do that so that no one could open it without it being noticed. And only the heir had the right to open the scroll and break the seals and receive the inheritance. This scroll in Revelation... In the hand of God is the title deed, the inheritance to to the universe, to all. And John says, Then I saw the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides, and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. You see, there was no worthy heir among all the created beings. There was no firstborn who appeared to take the inheritance from the hand of God on the throne. Then John says, I wept and wept because no one was found who is worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. He went and took the scroll from the hand of him who sat on the throne. And he then begins to open open that scroll and starts breaking those seals that and, and the, by doing that, he starts taking back the universe. This is a picture of the future. He is God's prototokos. He is God's heir. He is the heir of everything God possesses. He is the one who is, uh, in the future, will take that uh, title deed of the universe and will, will take back the universe, establish his kingdom, and then create a new heaven and a new earth. And at the end of Matthew, after his resurrection, just before he ascends to heaven, he said, All authority, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And folks, when he returns a second time, we've talked about this back in Matthew, he will use that authority as God to judge every man and woman on earth. Secondly, in our passage, I want us to notice his relationship to the world. It's in verses 16 and 17. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth. And I absolutely believe that he created it all in six days. That's what Scripture says in Genesis. And Words have meaning. The Holy Spirit inspired men to write the very words that he wanted written. It's amazing as we look at all creation, we have some concept of. Uh, you know, we, we have some concept of the universe. We, we've got telescopes, we've got all kinds of equipment now, but the vastness that we cannot comprehend. There are galaxies upon galaxies that we have no clue about because we are minuscule and our, and our finite minds are so finite compared to the magnificence of the universe but then there's a microcosm of creation as well it's not just the vastness but the microcosm and all the complex uh, complexities of life on earth all the way down to the tiniest tiniest particle the atom and man's still trying to figure that one out jesus created all of it in him all things were created in Genesis 1, it says, God created. In the beginning, God created. John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. We've looked at this verse. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, he was with God in the beginning, referring to before Genesis. Through Him, all things were made. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. And the Greek word for made means to become, come into existence, to receive, being. Who is this child that we celebrate at Christmas? This child is God. This child is the heir of the universe. This child is the creator of everything that exists. Everything that exists. In him was life. No one gave him life. He possesses it eternally. And everything he created was good. Seven times in Genesis one it says, And God saw and it was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. Why? Because he is good and he can't and he can only produce what is good. Well that, that then raises the question if God is good, why is there evil? If he is a creator, he must have created evil. Let me ask you this. Have you ever seen a hole? Have you ever seen a hole? You may say, well, sure. A hole in the window, a hole in my tire, a hole in the ground, a hole in the donuts. But what is a hole? It's nothing. It's only a word that describes the lack of something lack of glass in the window lack of lack of rubber in a tire the <laughs> lack of dirt in the ground the lack of dough in the donut same is true of evil god created good evil just describes the lack of good satan chose to rebel against god and therefore evil exists mankind chose to rebel against god they still do that's why there is evil, the lack of the goodness of God. It comes from rejecting God. And in the fall, man stained this universe with his sin, but the good news is that Christ will remake it good and permanently good because he is the agent of creation. Romans chapter 11, verse 36 says, For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So important to get beyond the manger. The manger is important. The Christ child is important. But we need to see the reality of who this baby really is. Paul mentions something else in verse 17. He is before all things. Not was. He is before. Before all things. That, that does, that's not even good English. But if you are the creator, you have to be there before the creation. He is before all things. That's why Revelation twenty two thirteen 13 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last, the beginning and the end. He didn't say, I was the Alpha, and I'm going to be the Omega. He says, I am the Alpha and Omega. I am all of it. He is before all things. That simple statement speaks of Christ as an eternal being. He is the only one who existed before the creation. Then there's one more thing about his relationship to the world, really the whole universe that needs to be seen here. At the end of verse 17, he says, In him all things hold together. In him, all things. This has been the dilemma of scientists forever. How can the intricacies of creation work so price, precisely together over the centuries and centuries and centuries? It has to work precisely, otherwise, a whole universe would, would dissolve into chaos. And there is only one answer that makes any sense at all. What holds them together is the Creator. He holds everything together. In Him, in Jesus, all things are held together. And Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, verse 10, that the day is coming when He's going to let go. He's going to let go of creation. And the entire universe will experience something like an atomic implosion or nuclear explosion of some sort Listen to his description there in 2 Peter. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. The universal wipeout of the present universe will then be replaced by a new heaven and a new earth because Christ is a creator and that's what he's going to do. If it were not for the power of Christ, the world All of creation would be chaos. We often talk talk about the laws of nature. The laws of nature are not the laws of nature. They're the laws of God. Nature is a word to describe what we see, not a word that describes the power behind it. There's only one word to describe the power behind it, and that is God, Jesus Christ. That's why the psalmist said in chapter 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Why? Because he is a creator, he's the one that's holding it all together. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. This is the child in Bethlehem. Isn't that amazing? In his relationship to God, in his relationship to the created world. Thirdly, Paul describes his relationship to angels we go back to verse 16 for a moment. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He has created everything in heaven and on earth, everything we're aware of and everything we're not aware of. Visible and invisible, he says. This would include angels. He says, whether thrones or powers or rulers are authority. He's not talking about earthly thrones and earthly powers here. God places people in authority here on earth. He places people on thrones here on earth. But here, Paul is describing Christ as a creator of powers, the creator of rulers, the creator of authorities. You see, he's moved from the physical to the angelic creation. This is the kind of language Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21, where it says Christ has been seated in the heavenlies, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Again, describing angels, the authorities, and the powers. He also refers to them in Ephesians chapter 6 when he's talking about our struggles. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against man. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the power, same language, of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There are holy angels, and unfortunately there are fallen angels. And Jesus is the ultimate authority over all of them. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, we see his power and authority over the demonic realm. It says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, isn't that neat? Having disarmed the powers and authorities, referring to the demonic realm, the fallen angels, evil spirits, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He showed up at their celebration. 1 Peter 3.19 says, After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. He's talking about evil spirits to those who were disobedient long ago, the fallen angels. He proclaimed to them his victory over them. He showed up, as it were, in the presence of their celebrate, uh, the celebrating demons to declare his triumph over them. Isn't that amazing? You know, people today have no idea whose name they are invoking when they, sp- when they swear by the name of Jesus Christ. Fourthly, Paul talks about his relationship to the church in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. There there are four facts here in that one verse that Paul shares with us about Christ. One, he is the head of the body. It's a perfect metaphor, of course, because if you don't have a head, your body doesn't function. Christ is the head of the body. The church is simply the organism that responds to his will and his word. And just as a body without a head is dead, so is a church. Without Christ as a head, the church is dead. There have been many churches, unfortunately, where people have usurped the authority of Jesus Christ in the church, and the church either dies or becomes a cult, in a living and vibrant church Jesus is the guiding directing dominating lord of the church expressing his will through his word and his power through the holy spirit and then it says he is the beginning what does that mean ark the beginning it really means the source the origin he is the source of the church. We're talking about the body, the church here in this verse. Scripture says we were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. He gives us life through His Spirit. He regenerates us. There is a church because He gave it life. And He continues to give life to everyone in the church. And I believe the church was ordained in eternity past between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the church was brought into existence on the day of Pentecost by the Holy Spirit whom the Son sent after the Father had exalted Him from the cross. And it's the Spirit of Christ who gives us life and brings us into the church. That's what it means when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 for we were all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body. He's talking about the church. And Christ is the head of the church and the beginning, the source, the origin of the church. The church. And thirdly, in that same verse, he is a firstborn from the dead. Now, we've already talked about what firstborn means. This is not saying that he is a first person to rise from the dead. He himself raised a couple people from the dead. There are a few instances in the Old Testament where people were raised from the dead. This is not talking about being the first one chronologically. What it's saying is, of all the people who will ever be raised from the dead, and by the way, every one will be raised eventually. John 5, Jesus says, he will raise the righteous to life and the unrighteous to condemnation. They will be raised either to heaven or to hell. So of all that have ever and will ever be raised from the dead, he is the premier one. There's that word prototokos again. Same word. It has to do with the one who has a primary position. He is the supreme one, Jesus is a living founder and life giver and ruler, and He is a living presence in His church, and He is the one who has power over it all. There's one final description that Paul gives us here when He's talking about the church He says He is supreme, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. He will be the first place in everything. He should be first place in our life. He should have the supremacy in our life and as a, a, as a body in the church. That's exactly what Paul was referring to in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 to 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, to the supreme place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. By his resurrection, he showed that he had conquered every enemy, sin, death, and hell, every opposing power, all the forces of Satan. There's nothing in life or death that can hold him. He is life. He overpowered death. That's who Jesus is to the church. That's his relationship to his body, the church. There's one final amazing statement in verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. What is this fullness of God and therefore the fullness of Christ? Well, if we go back to John 1.14, where it says, "...the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Uh, we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth." That's the fullness we're talking about. What does the fullness of grace and truth include? Well, it's all grace. It's all truth. It's all divine love, all justifying righteousness, all true pardon, all divine forgiveness. It includes adoption and inheritance and sanctification and holiness and wisdom and strength and knowledge, understanding, peace, joy, and comfort. All those spiritual realities, all of them are in Christ. So he is all that anyone needs. It's not Jesus plus. It's Jesus. That's why Paul expressed his greatest desire in life was, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. In Colossians 2.10, Paul Re- reiterates this when he says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you. Catch that. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. Why? Because all the fullness of God is in Christ, and Christ is where? Christ is in us. So we too have been brought to fullness. Who is this baby? <laughs> Who is this baby that we celebrate at Christmas? He is God, the very image of the invisible God. He is a supreme one over all creation. He is a creator of all things. He is a sustainer of all things. He is a supreme power over all principalities and rulers in heaven and on earth. He is a head of and the life of the church. And he is a fullness, and all the fullness of God dwells in him. So why in the world, in all his supremacy and power and glory and majesty, would he humble himself to come into a world as a baby? The last passage in our in our uh, passage this morning, Colossians 1, 19 and 20. for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That's why. Because he is the Savior of the world. That's what the angel told Mary. That's what the angel told Joseph. And that's all included in our passage here this morning. Jesus was born that's why he's called Emmanuel, God with us. In a moment, the worship team is going to come, and we're going to sing a song that says, In Christ Alone, because he's the, that's all we need. We only need Christ. He is everything for us. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when strivings cease. My comforter, and all in all, here in the love of Christ, I stand. Father, this morning, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the baby there in that manger so long ago. It was your very image, everything about you, all the fullness of who you are, you placed into the form of a small human baby because you want that relationship with us. You want to fill us. You want to supply our needs. You want to save us. You want to uh, fill us with your joy and your peace. You want to give give us that purpose. All that comes to the salvation of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that this morning that you would do that anew for us. And as we look to the new year, I pray that this fresh understanding perhaps of who the babe in the manger really is and who he is to us and his relationship to you, his relationship to us, his relationship to the angels, his relationship to the world, his relationship to the church, we may have a greater understanding that it's all your fullness in him and Him in us, and so we have all that fullness. Father, I pray that you would give victory to us in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.